0: Welcome to the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veterans Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. Eamon Kennedy. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit the Abstract Doctors for information in upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors podcast. The doctors are in open up your mind and say ah.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back uh, to our next episode of the Abstract Veteran Series with your co-host Char Gatlin, always my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ron Seal. Today we have a special guest. We have a Dr. Eamon Kennedy, who's going to come on and he's going to talk about uh, sort of his research looking at Early onset dementia and post nine eleven veterans. Obviously, this is something that that affects our population in, in many ways. Particularly, someone like myself that's in my my late forties. Um, those of us that have been through the world of TBI, you know, what's next, right? This is coming down the road. But the folks here at Cincy Limbic, or excuse me, Limbic Sensey. I apologize about that one. You know, we're tackling this research in a lot of different ways. And as many of you know, the idea behind this podcast is to is to bring these researchers on. and Let's put it out there. Let's put it out there in a way that that is simple to understand. Is as Ron just pointed out that a private first class could understand. And I can say that because I was a private first class at one point a long, long time ago. Yes, I was. I was PFC Gatlin and I had I was eight up. I'll put it that way. But I've come a long way since then. So with that being aside, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Kennedy, Dr. Kennedy, welcome to the show. Um, Tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and and what you're doing.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss the work. So, uh, yeah, I'm an Irish biophysicist and I work at the University of Utah in the Torch Lab and we look at the trajectories of um, care and health in post 9-11 veterans with a particular focus on those who've experienced traumatic brain injuries. Um, But before that, I did my PhD in biophysics in Ireland. So biophysics is an area of research that looks at the overlaps between biology and physics. So say, for example, radiation therapy is an area of interest for biophysicists, which is a cancer treatment that uses high doses of radiation to kill cancer cells and shrink tumors and things like that. So you need to know about like gamma rays and x-rays, but also about patient care. So that's an example of a biophysicist's expertise. Uh, But then in 2014, I uh, moved to the United States and I landed uh, fresh off the boat into Notre Dame home of the fighting irish and took a job there so that was like an interesting experience as an irish person you know the first time you live in the united states and everyone's shouting go irish at you and you've got these leprechaun mascots and everything it was a lot of fun so i I worked there at the harper cancer research institute doing some imaging and diagnostics and then i you know i really enjoyed it but um I wanted to change, and I moved to the East Coast. And I I worked at Brown for a little while um, with the wonderful team led by Jacob Rosenstein. And uh, we did something a little different. We looked at uh, the human metabolome, which is all of the small molecules in your body. But we approached that from an interesting engineering perspective, we did some quirky projects for the Department of Advanced Research Project Agency, sorry, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, where um, we tried to develop computer systems and uh information storage devices in chemistry now we like to think about our phones being like silicon and like you know digital but we did some very different research there but after a while i wanted to do something a little more applied and get back to my roots of you know therapies and human research so um i was very inspired by the work of mary Jo Pugh out here at the university of utah who is a veteran herself and has experienced uh, a moderate traumatic brain injury during the course of her, her years. So um, we are uh, motivated in particular to look at, uh, to help veterans who have experienced uh, brain injuries at the Torch Lab. So that's where I come from and what I do. No, incredible, incredible
1: background. Dr. Pugh is a very well-respected researcher and boy, she continues to knock him out of the park every day for sure. She, uh, she definitely goes an extra mile for the veteran population. So, you know, looking at your study and I, and I, this is going to be a little different the way we do this, but I want to throw this out there. So as you, as you, as you talk about sort of what you've done up to this point that, uh, that our listeners can understand. So could you explain kind of what a case controlled study is and yes, then just, at that point, you just kind of step off into, into what you're doing?
2: Sure. Yeah. So statistical matching is just a technique to remove biases um, in science. When you want to answer a question, you set up an experiment. An example experiment is a randomized control trial where you take a group of people, let's say 200 people, and you divide them randomly into one of two different groups. One group gets the treatment and the other doesn't. Um, The problem with trying to understand things like dementia and traumatic brain injury is you can't perform that type of experiment. You can't go around hitting people on the head and things. So instead, what you wanna do is an observational study where you just look at people for whom the, um, the treatment or the thing actually happened, say for example, early onset dementia, and you look at people for whom it didn't, and you compare them. But the problem is that there may be underlying fundamental differences between the type of people who get early onset dementia and the type of people who don't, that you haven't controlled for. So in matching what you do is, you take individuals who really did have something happen to them, and you find other people who are otherwise similar, But just didn't have that particular thing and that's how you define your for example in a one-to-one ratio your control group by matching people against otherwise similar individuals to reduce bias Uh,
3: yeah so um one just from a scientific standpoint this was really extremely well done i i enjoyed reading it the, the thoughtfulness and the amount of time that actually went into this particular publication so i always like to uh, give kudos, uh, for that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think, I think most people are less interested in how it was done and more interested in what the study tells us. And of course, I think a lot of, uh, people who have served are concerned about, um, getting, uh, early onset dementia. So why don't you talk a little bit about, um, what your study found?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, i'll speak directly to your uh listeners and and to the veterans you described and just say there are things that we can't change like age and genetics are our primary risk factors for dementia earlier now right Um, but there's things that we can um, and we know that diet and exercise have a very like strong impact um, avoiding things like smoking and excessive alcohol use have been proven to be statistically significantly uh, important factors for uh, mitigating uh, downstream dementia, but there's also things that your listeners mightn't be as aware of. Um, air pollution has been shown to be uh, consequential, as well as depression. So depression, you know, it's these. a lot of the time underlying it, you have these chemical imbalances in the brain that make you feel chronically downhearted and blue, right? But those same chemical processes have mechanisms that are similar to dementia and, and, and depression is considered a risk factor. Um, but a particularly uh, one of, of, of serious concern that we want to look at for early onset dementia was head trauma. Now, why did, were we particularly concerned with that for people who got dementia early on? Let me, let me just roll back and, and, and quickly define something and just say that uh, for the terms of this conversation, uh, dementia is kind of a catch-all for diseases of progressive decline in mental abilities right and conventional dementia is in people who were over the age of 65 and early onset dementia is in people who are uh, under the age of who were diagnosed before the age of 65 now when we tend to think about dementia we think about older people and that totally makes sense 94 uh, percent of diagnosed cases are in people over the age of 65 but that remaining six percent the early onset dementia cases are a group of very particular concern right because in our cohort that we're looking at we have people who are 27 28 29 years old who have full-blown dementia i don't mean reductions in cognitive ability they have mild moderate dementia and i mean if you think about the human cost of that i mean it's it's a it's a tragedy i mean the the decades lost i mean you know not just the loss of you know, uh, family, finance, and work, but also, you know, dignity and, and quality life. So we were very motivated to try and look at, you know, what are the cures and treatments, um, but those have limited success, and as a result, uh, also look at what are the preventatives, what can we do to to avoid it?
1: Have you seen any, and this maybe stepping on an limb here, but sort of looking over some of the, the tables and so forth in the manuscript, and it now, unfortunately, a lot of these other things are, are sort of embedded in our our veteran population from diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, obesity. You name it. I mean, it's uh, it's an unfortunate reality. But in looking at the you know the levels of TBIs from moderate, mild to severe, have have you guys I don't want to say controlled for, but if you run across anything maybe significant with individuals that have seen repetitive mild TBI as opposed to maybe just just
2: one TBI. There is a lot of literature showing that repeated TBI is more serious than singular events across the board. Yeah, Um, so that's something that we might call a dose response in scientific terms where the individual has experienced more of whatever that insult is or the exposure is. And as a result, we might expect to see later on that they have higher risks for things. And although we didn't look at, at repeated TBI in this case, we did look across the spectrum of severity. And we did find that dose response, but I'm getting ahead of myself.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh it's fascinating stuff. And, and I guess I have one one last question, sort of dovetail off of this. And this I don't want to go outside outside your lane or mine either, but one of the things that, that really jumped out at me was the positive predictive value of 27% for the VA on on early dementia.
2: I mean, yeah, that's, so that's, nobody, that's missing a lot of folks. Yes. Um, so I can talk about that. Is more of a methods thing. Uh let okay, me sure. train us and say like one of the challenges of this work was to try and accurately identify a lot of veterans who have dementia and were young. So like you say, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are wondering like why is it hard to identify veterans with dementia from their medical records? It should be obvious, right? But the fact is that the algorithms that we use to find veterans with dementia in older cohorts are really bad at finding young people who have Dementia. And as you say, it has a positive predictive value of just 27%. However, uh, in this study, that was the challenge we overcame because we used some new algorithms for identifying young people with dementia with positive predictive values that range from 88 to 91%. And that basically means in our study, we were confident that the people who we set up dementia, for the most part, really had it. maybe one in 20 wouldn't. Um, So we were, it was a pretty good numbers absolutely yeah and,
3: yeah and that and that was very nicely done because uh, i just know from having discussed with a lot of researchers that um that it truly is hard to get accurate uh, information not only on uh, on who might have a, a an early onset dementia but also even you know who has had a tbi um, although the data has gotten much better over time and certainly um, I'm sure your work as well as uh, that of, um, of, of, uh, of Mary Jane Pugh uh, have advanced that uh, exponentially in terms of getting accuracy in those diagnoses. Um, so um, your paper didn't necessarily um, address uh, uh, what... Um, veterans or service members could do to reduce their risk, although you've noted that some things, you know, you can't change the fact that you've had a brain injury. Um, but um, what what types of things are modifiable in, in your findings?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think it would be important to maybe describe the findings and then to discuss them. Um, one of the headline results was that post 9-11 veterans have higher odds of early onset dementia following TBI and the odds ratio is about three after adjustment, which in kind of common parlance is like about 2.5 times as likely. Um, But we also found that, you know, more severe TBIs were um, more likely to have elevated risk um, for uh, dementia downstream. Um, but we also found that things like epilepsy and depression and cardiovascular risk um, are, are are there so I think um, you know I that, that that's the data um, I want to maybe talk in a human way about what you're what you're saying which is um, part of our responsibilities to our family and friends is is to try and maintain our own mental health and well-being right I think that's one of the the findings of this study, which is that like, it's so easy to put long-term health, like consider, considering something like dementia, which could be decades in the line on the long finger, but it's not selfish to do whatever we need to, to take care of ourselves, right? We could be saving our families decades of distress and heartache by by avoiding long-term like long-term ailments like this. And the things that can be changed, the question is, is it easy to change them? are for sure diet and exercise, uh, cardiovascular risk and depression, mental health is a big one, It, you know, mind affects body and we see that in the data, uh, as well as you know, the obvious stuff that any doctor would tell you like, like smoking and, and diabetes is a statistically significant risk. But again, other, like I said, there's other things that we mightn't think of like air pollution and just really trying to avoid injuries, particularly head traumas
1: there's a lot of social determinants of health for sure that 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 go into that and particularly and i mean this is a conversation within itself all the different socio-demographic issues and so forth where you are location environment i mean you you name it um you know but but let's dovetail on that for for a second let's let's hear your opinion what do you foresee as future reach excuse me what do you foresee as future research opportunities based on some of these findings can you see it going one way versus another
2: well it's interesting the things that people picked up on and care about. I absolutely agree that like the the topic of dementia is what this is about and what I was interested in when we were writing. And we were motivated to to really just quantify in a good quality sample what the risk factors were because I, I think it's worth saying, and we kind of suggested in in the discussion, the risk factors for early onset dementia as opposed to dementia are poorly understood and I don't say that lightly. I mean the the reports before had 63 people in them and that's not the researchers fault that's just because it's a relatively rare form of dementia like I said it's six percent so you know it's hard to get up the numbers but in this study we had you know over you know about a thousand people 973 to be exact so that so we were able to actually get some good quality information and and kind of narrow down the, the, the confidence or improve the confidence, I should say, on, on some of those results. Um, talking more generally, like you say like what, what, what does the future hold, um, sure. I think that like cures and treatments to, to slow the progression of dementia have historically had very limited success, right? There are exceptions like uh, memantine, there's 3 million prescriptions for memantine in the United States every year but that's been around for a while. Eli Lilly uh, started producing that in 1968 as a diabetic and it just got repurposed. Um, The problem with focusing on cure and treatments is that uh, Alzheimer's, for example, is known in the industry as the graveyard of drug discovery. And the reason why, just to give you an example, out of the last sort of 250 drugs that have been trialed, I mean, think about the cost of a clinical trial, right? Like, I mean, you're talking millions and hundreds of them. They've only shown, you know, one or two that have shown broad, consistent benefits over the last few years, and, and there's also a lot of spectacular failures, like for example, um, solanezumab last year. Again, Eli Lilly showed great promise, but unfortunately, just didn't pass phase three clinical trials. Just the results didn't bear out. So, with all that in mind, I think a refocus towards prevention's and risk factors needs to be looked at very seriously because they can make the difference to patient care, and we're having these just very long-term intractable problems about trying to develop treatments that actually really work to slow the progression of dementia. No,
1: it's refreshing to, to hear that. I, I can remember some of the earlier research in TBI, I wanna say around 2008 to 10 timeframe, maybe a little bit later, 2011, they were taking a lot of pharmaceuticals, using them off-market to tackle TBI. And they were coming from the world of Alzheimer's, as you mentioned, Parkinson's, dementia, and, and some others. And they were met with, shall we say, limited, limited success. So, you know, where you you brought the focus forward just then on, you know, looking at sort of the risk factors and, and taking care of yourself, you know, in an effort to prevent. I think that's a message that that should resonate through our veteran population. Actually, anyone listening on here, you know, folks, this is real simple stuff. You know, you're you're your own best form of medicine, take care of yourself and limit the risk factors. But stepping back off that, hey Ron, what you got?
3: yeah i was looking um and you may know uh, uh, off the top of your head amen um you, you know before the age of 65 uh, you know I'm, I'm just sort of thinking uh, like uh you know like a veteran who might be out there who's thinking geez i'm 40 i'm 50 i'm 60 how concerned hey, that's me. should i be <laughs> um and and so i'm you know so i, I was trying to look at uh what role age played in this group? In other words, you know, did you find that there was a larger group of people uh, that comprised your, your sample that uh, had uh, early onset dementia between the ages of say 60, 65 versus 40 to 45 or 45 to 50? Logically, you would think that would be the case, um, but, but I wasn't sure how that played out when you put this uh, group of people together to do the analyses.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think the first thing to do to alleviate some fears is to say it's not like early onset dementia is a completely unique, distinct entity. It is kind of a continuum, right? And and I mean, at the end of the day, age is the primary uh risk factor for for all dementias. And that and we did see that in the data. I mean, it, you know, there are more people in the sort of the 50 to 65 age group, let's say, than in the you know, the 35 to, to 50 age group, right? Like it's it is increasingly rare to get early onset dementia at younger ages Um, that sort of analysis was done and we did all the histograms and things but it didn't make the final cut but um, we did also explore um you know age at you know the distant uh, the duration of time between when people had the um you know injuries like tbi or had other diagnosis and we did a sort of sensitivity analysis there compared to the the date of of dementia diagnosis so there there was there was more to put in but we wanted to kind of um, finesse it down to just the key results
3: yeah and it, and it sounds as though really with this kind of research you, you were you were more looking at you know what risk factors or potentially protective factors stand out versus trying to come up with an exact you know Percent of 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 what someone's risk might be. Yeah, yeah. In other words, someone might be twice as likely, two and a half times as likely to have dementia having had a TBI, Um, but but it's really hard to sort of put that in the context of a base rate and, and be able to say, well, what's my risk? You know, because you're dealing with subgroups of people who had dementia and then a subgroup, you know, that's a that's a control that's matched.
2: Yeah, no, it it is a like I said, it's it's a little a bit of an underexplored research area because it is a bit of a niche. Um, Early onset dementia is rare compared to dementia. I think people should take that as a take home. Um, But dementia, you know, which is a catch all term for lots of different disease processes is common. And a lot of these risk factors overlap. Right, and, and that was part of what we wanted to understand is, are they are there similar risk factors, um, I think it's there's about 7 million cases per year uh, globally of, of, of dementia, so it, it is a, a, a burdensome. Uh, health condition on at scale yeah, for sure, so it is something that people would want to start thinking about and looking at uh, mitigating risk factors taking care of their their own minds and, and their own mental health, as well as their physical health. Um, but yeah, I don't think that early onset dementia is is as uh, it is very a burdensome affliction for the individual and for their families as well, of course, because of just the outsized loss of uh, and you know the, all the emotions that comes with that. It's a very difficult and long journey. Um, but yeah, dementia risks I think significantly overlapped with early onset dementia risks is one of the, the key findings.
3: And is this the kind, Are these the kind of research findings that uh, maybe clinicians might be able to use to sort of say, "Oh, wow! You know, this you know this person you know has uh, seizures, and they're reporting some uh, some memory loss, and and they've had a TBI, and geez, it looks like they have some heart disease." Would those be indicators or signals uh, for clinicians to say, "Oh." you know, perhaps we should do a little more testing or look a little bit more closely at these memory issues.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think from the clinical perspective, um, it's always hard when you're trying to identify something that's a little rarer. I mean, if you look at case studies of early onset dementia, a lot of the time they just go through this really unfortunate and long process of misdiagnosis, um, where, you know, for example, someone has early onset frontotemporal dementia. Frontotemporal dementia is um, dementia that doesn't affect all of your brain equally but just the you know kind of behind your forehead and just behind your ears um frontal and parietal lobes and uh, that makes up the majority of early onset dementia cases and that often shows is it changes in uh, behavior in people who are young you know 30 40 years old and um you know they they often get misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder or maybe some kind of like adjustment behavioral disorders and they get put on all kinds of medications and who knows what that's doing to the real degeneration, you know, and, and, and actually it's very hard to identify unless the individual has a magnetic resonance imaging done and you actually directly observe the degeneration in, in itself in, in the brain, right? So um, I think that's something that clinicians can take home that, uh, you know, there can be these, and I mean, they already know they're trained but you know it, it is something that needs to we need to be open to more diagnostics at an earlier age in order to identify this in post 9 11 veterans because post 9 11 veterans they're relatively young they've had a lot of tbis and that means they are at elevated risk for early onset dementia oh, that was a so raymond
3: great... what, what oh, i was just going to ask for take-home messages yeah. uh good good char no i said that was
1: that was a, a great explanation it's just yeah, I just wow, well, had to, I had to comment on this. I mean, folks, once again, and you're hearing it here, talk to people. You know, I mean, take care of your bodies and take care of your minds too, folks. It's not all about push ups and sit ups. Sometimes it's about reading, sometimes it's about doing puzzles. Sometimes there's an emotional, mental, and spiritual component, and for it's, it overlaps. And you have to take care of yourself. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at all of these, and I have the advantage of having this here in front of me, but. All of these sort of co-conditions and we're not going to get into them but they're in the veteran population folks eat right walk read smile and if you need help reach out i know that sounds simple but i can't make it any simpler than that the other thing i would comment and we're about to hit time is that it's interesting in in listening to dr kennedy's uh, presentation how all of these these limbic sensory studies intertwine it's just neat to see how fluid they are and how they come together and how in the end, I mean, you don't think at looking at it from, from this point, but hopefully we will, when we get to the end of these podcasts, you'll see, but how they all sort of mute, well, maybe not all mutually supporting, but they're mutually supporting and in, end in, in to help the veteran and get to it. So just a, just once again, I just an unbelievable study that I'm, that I'm happy to be, uh, or privileged, I should say, to be, to be part of, and then Stutch and Steam Company as well. So, so with, with that aside, uh, and I'll, I guess I'll just go ahead and ask you, Ron, I mean, what are, Dr. Kennedy, what what are your takeaways on this? Give us a couple of takeaways before we wrap up. You know that, uh, well, not only for clinicians what you've done, but but other researchers and veterans. But you know, give us uh, you know give us your honest opinion. Give us some takeaways.
2: Uh, well, my opinion about all of this is that um, the brain is a muscle. You know, and over time as we age, it's perfectly normal. You know, to you know have a little bit of memory problems, maybe struggle with a couple of words. That's nothing to worry about. But that if if people around you are noticing those behaviors are, are you know those changes are happening quite quickly or you notice them yourself especially if it comes with emotional changes and things like that that's when you might want to uh talk to your doctor and and just get checked out but like i said the brain is a muscle and we can fight this that's what prevention is it's a fight where you realize that uh it's the realization i hope that i would like to say is a final note that, you know, there are free apps like Lumosity is a free app where you can do, you know, brain training exercises and the your cognitive abilities are in your own hands. The human brain is the most complex uh, device, instrument, entity, whatever you want to call it in the known universe. And you own one. You have it. It's yours to do with whatever you want. with, and, and But treating it like a muscle and doing the push ups, like you say, like uh, keeping your brain active and enjoying your life, finding ways to to be happy and improve your mental health, all of that stuff is going to reduce your risk of cognitive decline long term.
1: We need to, we need to package this. I mean, we need to package this like we did, like we did uh, Dr. Seafood. This is hey, this is good stuff, Dr. Kennedy. I think it resonates, it's straightforward, it's simple, it's productive, and you know what? There's no nonsensical, you know what behind it. They just tell it like it is. And uh yeah, I, for one, I, for one, appreciate that. Um, well, as I said, it, that brings us to our time. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kenny, for being here. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. And so much. if we're still around next year and we're still trying to figure, figure that one out, if we make it, we would love to have you back. If you're game for sure to maybe get an update on where things are and hear what you, what you got going on and see what, uh, you know, what good stuff you guys are doing for, for our listeners and our veterans community. So, absolutely appreciate it.
2: thank you so much for the offer and uh, i'd just like to say thank you as well to all of the co-authors and collaborators at the torch lab and beyond who assisted with this project
1: yeah absolutely and folks there you hear you know from us here on veteran series abstract we thank you for tuning in again and giving us a little bit of your time today to hear wow just an unbelievable study and the way it was broken down so on behalf of myself, Char Gatlin, uh, my co-host, Dr. Ron Steele uh, and the Unseen Machine that keeps these podcasts rolling, Miss AC, the Colonel, and Ron up top in the box. Thank you kindly, and we will see you next time, hopefully next week. Take care, and until then.
0: Thank you to Dr. Eamon Kennedy for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Steele today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veterans Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment soon.